Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's the 17th of January, 2013, and we have Holly Epstein Ojalvo and Esther Wojetsky here. Thanks, both of you, for coming. You're challenging my ability to pronounce last names. <laughs> I think you did a great job. <laughs> Esther gave me some special help there. With a last name like Hargadon, I have no excuses. <laughs> Thanks for being here. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Thanks to Mighty Bell for support, and as well as Blackboard Collaborate for providing this room. I have been on my Hack Your Education tour. It's a lot of fun taking a short break, but go to hackyoureducation.com for more information. We've had lots of fun events this past year. They're all all the recordings are up available and for free with the Learning 2.0 conference in August, the Library 2.012 conference in October, and then the, the Mothership, the Global Education Conference in November. All of those recordings up for free at those sites. Coming up this year, we've announced the School Leadership Summit in March. It should be a lot of fun. There is the Reform Symposium in, in May, which is going to be a collaborative effort with that group, and I'm going to help provide the rooms and the the organizational back end. We've announced the homeschool conference in May. This is going to be fascinating. And then with Hewlett Packard, a worldwide STEM conference in July. And if you're going to ISTE, we have just put up our information about ISTE Unplugged. These are the crowdsourced activities around this very large EdTech conference that's taking place this year in San Antonio. Uh, in addition to uh, all of the fun things that we're doing. We've renamed our all-day Saturday unconference to Hack Education, and Audrey Waters is going to co-chair that day, which should be a lot of fun. Uh, and for the first time ever, we do a lot of fun things, but for the first time ever, we're going to do Keynotes Unplugged. Everybody you ever thought should have been invited to keynote this conference, we're going to invite them to give a keynote and some pre-dinner events Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, this should really be interesting, and I can't look, I can't wait. Coming up on the future of education, and on the 29th, Gary Obermeyer and I will drill down on Deming, especially Deming's views on data and what we can learn about data from that total quality guru. Uh, Stephen Baruska is going to talk about economic inequality. Richard Millington is going to come on to talk about his book and managing social communities. Carol Black comes back to talk about Occupy Your Brain, a fascinating blog post she's made. Laura Grace Weldon will talk about free-range learning. If you thought there was homeschooling, unschooling, not schooling, now there's free-range learning. Howard Rheingold talks to us about peer learning, or what he's calling peeragogy. Uh, we're going to have Paul Thomas talk about poverty and the corporate takeover of education. Maurice Gibbons on self-directed learning. Gavin Dykes on student voice. Roger Shank comes back to talk about cognitive science. We're going to do a special show on virtual book clubs how to hold them, who's holding them, where they're taking place, and what the techniques are that people are using to make those effective. That should really be fun. Uh, Chris Mercoliano, I don't know if I'm saying that right, he's going to talk about In Defense of Childhood uh, based on a, a book he's written that's just a fascinating look at, at uh, the ways in which childhood has disappeared. Ida Harold Caperton talks about constructivist learning, Jay Cross on informal learning, Adam Bessie on germ. This is the global ed reform movement, uh, and this comes from Posse Salberg's book on Finland. Um, John Hattie 
talks to us about visible learning, and then Jim Popham on measurement. That was a, a long list, but these are really just being announced. So thanks for putting up with that. And please do join us. They're all free, and they're all here in this environment. Coming up, or, I'm sorry, all of our previous shows are recorded in full Blackboard Collaborate form and in MP3 versions. Uh, we had a show on Google Plus Communities. David Risher talked to us about World Reader. Jim Knight was on. You can see there. Uh, at this point, we're over 350 shows. Just a lot of fun and, and hopefully something that's of value to you. This is where those of you in the live studio audience get to tell us where you're participating from. Look for the star to the left of the map. Click on it twice and then click on the map. It's fun to know the time and the temperature. I'm in Park City, Utah, flying tonight to the Bay Area, looking to get out of the negative degree temperatures which we've been having here in Park City. We had negative 18 one morning. Quite cold. I'm hoping, Esther, it's a little warmer in Palo Alto. <laughs> well, I don't want to spoil the fun here, but I just want you to know that yesterday the temperature was um, below 30 in the morning. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, that just seems balmy. A balmy. Okay. Well, as, lo as long as as long as you like that, it was a little cold for me at California. I mean. I saw frost. That was kind of uh, that made me sort of shocked. How funny! Well, we have we have someone in Australia, but other than that, I'm mostly North America centric audience. Wherever you're listening from, thanks so much for being here. There was a lot of good buzz about this show today. Um, I'm really looking forward to it, and, and appreciate everybody who's come. We do have a Mighty Bell space for the show where you can keep the conversation going. Mighty Bell is Gina Bianchini's latest social product, and I do consult for Gina, in full disclosure, but you're going to love Mighty Bell. So go there for sure to check out post-show conversation. So I was intrigued, Holly, to hear you describing to Esther uh, Kicker, because I would have thought that you had made that connection already. So let's start with that, uh, and that's why I reached out to you, in fact. Would you describe what Kicker is? Absolutely. Um, Kicker is news for people who think that news is not for them, um, specifically the under 30 crowd. Um, study after study has been done, um, and a lot of statistics about newspaper readership obviously point to this fact as well, showing that um, the newspaper readership is dropping among young people. There was just another study a couple of days ago saying that the, the average age of newspaper readers is going up and up and up and that newspapers are really not grabbing the young audience. Uh, and I looked around and didn't really feel like mainstream news organizations were doing all that much to address the news needs um, of young people and also why they don't follow news. So I, um, in the spring, I decided to leave my job at the New York Times and create Kicker. So it's basically a site for um, engaging young people in current events and social action. So that is part of uh, this, the, the core offering there, right, is it's not just the news story, but there is actually a set of things that you can do after you've read the story. Can you give us an example? 
Sure, absolutely. Um, but, and that's exactly right. Every story has ways that you can take action. And we ordinarily have uh, a range of different ways and different things that you can do. Um, so, sorry. So, um, for example, today's story um, is about Lance Armstrong and I hope I'm saying his name right, Monty Teo, um, who's a, um, a football player at Notre Dame who's the subject of a very um, kind of interesting hoax story. You can see that right there on your screen. Um, and at the end of the story, it says, you know, even though, you know, these scandals may be concerning you, there's actually some good that these individuals have done, and there's links to um, getting involved in Livestrong and in two organizations that, um, that Teo has been involved in himself um, that he's volunteered with. And, you know, it just sort of depends on the day. Like yesterday's big story, of course, was what Obama um, proposed for uh, gun control, and there's several different ways of getting involved in that story, ranging from um, supporting the Second Amendment to speaking out for gun control. So it really depends on the day but, and, and the story, but we always have some interesting ways of um, actually getting involved in you the know, story. You know, it's interesting for me as sort of a news junkie, a great percentage of my enjoyment of the news is actually talking with others about it. So are you finding that this is making a difference for youth, having a, a place to um, know what to talk about? Absolutely. Um, and that's one of our one of our features called Today in 10. And it's sort of a roundup of the day's stories um, in a predictable format. So we have the person of the day, the tweet of the day, the video of the day, et cetera. First of all, we get tons of feedback about that. People say, wow, we love that. And we, we often tell people, like, here's your dinner conversation. Here's your weekend conversation. And, you know, that, and we sort of package it in that way. And I think people really appreciate that. It kind of gives them a way to think about, you know, how to talk to their parents on the way to school in the morning. You, don't, you, know, you can get beyond, like, how was your day and talk about these, you know, some of these issues. So I got an error when I clicked to that Today in 10, and I don't know if that's just on my computer or if it was for everybody. Are you seeing that Today in 10 screen? Yeah, that's really yeah, strange. Yeah, I'm seeing the uh, internal error. Okay. No, no, it could just be on my end. So, so part of the fun of this was having uh, made connection with you, Holly, and thinking about uh, the importance of student engagement in news. You know, I immediately thought of sort of drawing Esther into the conversation. And in doing so, she coined this sort of magic phrase for the blog post, you know, which is that journalism is the 21st century curriculum. So Esther, I'd like to give you a chance to kind of talk about why that came so instantly to mind and uh, um, why you feel so strongly about it. Well, um, I think media, if you just think about it, we all have cell phones in our hands. We all have computers. Most of us have these little tablet things or, you know, iPads, iPods, um, whatever. And um, those are communication devices. And this, these are the tools for the 21st century. So now, we have kids in high school. We should be teaching for the tools in the 21st century. First, we should be teaching them how to access information on those tools. And then we should be teaching them to be creators for, of information or opinion on those tools. Um, if we were an agrarian society, we would be teaching about, you know, how to raise crops 
and um, you know how to use plows or whatever tractors or something. But in fact, this is a digital society, and so journalism is the curriculum for the 21st century. It teaches kids all the tools that they need in order to be able to function well in this um, environment. In addition to that, it, it also serves as a tool for teaching kids how to be critical thinkers. Because if you teach them how to gather information from primary sources, not just go online and get it, but gather, go out, interview people, talk to them, and then write it up, the first thing they have to do is figure out what is the most important thing. And you know, for most kids, <laughs> that is very difficult to do. Because they're not used to judging or ana analyzing the information. They're just used to regurgitating. And um, this forces them into figuring out like what is the most important thing, how to write it up in a concise way, and how to present it in a way that other people will want to read it. And this ties in completely, 100%, to all our digital tools. Mm -hmm. So if you want them to write something, you know, a blog, they should be able to get this information. They should get it right. You know, it should represent both sides of an issue, not just their side. They should look at both sides. You know, and this is part of the critical thinking skills that I think are really important for all kids, all kids in the United States, not just those kids that are lucky enough to take journalism, but all kids need this because they want everybody wants to get the information they want, and most people don't know how to do it. You know, so um, let's help them. Let's teach them, and we should be teaching it in the ninth or tenth grade, or maybe even earlier, seventh and eighth grade. I mean, I see three-year-old, not sorry, third graders, sorry, who are already online doing all kinds of things, looking for everything. So. Maybe we should teach it down there at the, at the third grade level, you know, after they've learned to read a little bit. So that, th that's just a short version. Of, I could probably go on for the whole hour about this, which I'm sure you um, probably would be happy to, not to have. <laughs> but um, so that's, that's it. And at, at Palo Alto High School, I should just tell you, most of the kids agree because the program is, uh, is a, the biggest attraction in the school. There are more kids taking journalism at Palo Alto High School than any other school, any other program in the district. It's the largest program in the district. It's also the largest journalism program in the nation. So um, might have hit on something that they're interested in. Pastor, I want to try and put this in some historical perspective. And, and I'm thinking you may have an understanding that I'm not going to have. So it feels okay. like there are some converging trends right now uh, cultural trends, both of which relate to institutions. And one is this sort of shift in the dialogue around education and this um, increasingly progressive voice concerning um, compliance and factory model education. Mm -hmm. And the other is the shift in journalism, which is also undergoing a sort of deinstitutionalization, mm -hmm. in which we are really worried and wondering about who's going to do the investigative journalism and mm -hmm. is everybody now participating. Did these two trends intersect in, in ways that we can identify as positive and or negative? Um, is this a unique opportunity historically to um, help kids become more independent at, at a time when it's really needed? You know, I would definitely say yes to that. And yes. I, I, I that's what going to say yes to. Sorry, go ahead, Esther. I was going to say that's what you're trying to do with Kicker. 
Well, yeah, I mean, interestingly enough, I actually gave a talk at 140 EDU um, last summer that I can post the um, YouTube link for, even though it's kind of embarrassing. But, and I talked about how um, because of the real-time web, um, the, whole, the whole notion of, you know, adults saying to kids, like, this isn't the real world, or wait until you get into the real world, which I've always hated, and I always told kids that wasn't true, but if that notion ever had any relevance or truth to it, I think that's way out the window. Because as Esther is saying, there's really nothing more authentic than kids doing journalism themselves, but there's also nothing more authentic than joining in the conversation. And if you're, you know, tweeting at a reporter on Twitter or, um, or commenting in a, in a comment forum or whatever it is, you're right out there in the real world with everybody else is doing it. It doesn't matter that you're 16 or, or 61 or however old you are. So I think, you know, it just it makes it even that much more authentic because not only are you doing journalism in your classroom and in your school, but you're also, you can be part of the conversation and part of the flow anywhere. And especially, too, with citizen journalism, there's so many contributions now. So I think there's, I think, Steve, I think you really are hitting on something that it's a very different kind of moment than it used to be when we talk about journalism and education. I think it's, it's a, there's a huge opportunity right now. Esther, I want to ask you to sort of comment on that and also follow up because every technology sort of offers this promise of redistribution of power and, and there's, a, there's sort of this glory moment at which we all sort of believe that everything's going to change because of the technology. Sort of from your perspective historically, is there likely to be a larger power shift because of these technologies or is there likely to be um, a shift of the pendulum back towards towards more controlling? No, I think there's a larger shift towards um, more people having more power, more control. Let's just look at Twitter. And, you know, just imagine you, a student can write something on, on Twitter or on Facebook or on Google Plus or whatever, and, and they can actually make a huge difference. And what was happening 10 years ago? I mean, they wrote a comment to their teacher and it went into that, like, circular file. Um, this, it's, a democrat, it's a way to democratize, actually, every, the world. People have much more access to uh, communication and to these tools. I mean, even in China, they, they're having trouble controlling all those people. Because they all have these tools, and you know they're saying things that might not be approved by the by the head honchos over there. And so the question is, what are they going to do? Are they going to collect all the iPhones, and or they don't have iPhones? They're going to collect <laughs> all the phones, <laughs> collect all the the computer devices. I mean, they've tried to block everything. Every single company in China has a whole team of sensors. It's just part of the way they do business. Um, and that's because they're trying to maintain control at the top. And they don't want people anywhere in the middle or at the bottom or just they don't want the regular guy to have any power. And these tools give you power. Mm -hmm. Communication. Esther, it's a very popular program, very well known. Do you get any pushback from adults who feel as though it's an inappropriate role for students to be thinking this independently? That's an interesting question. Um, well, I don't get any pushback at all from, from parents. And I get no pushback from the community. 
But uh, when I first started doing this years ago, maybe, you know, because this program's now been in existence in, uh, well, I started in 1984 with a typewriter. So, um, but it's been in, in existence for a while. But I do remember when we first hit the technological age, it's about the 1990s, um, the majority of complaints came from the teachers uh, who were concerned about students having too much uh, say in what was going on at the school. Uh, I thought that was interesting. Um, that, that doesn't happen at all anymore. Uh, I think it was just a paradigm shift at that point because kids were, were talking about issues that before they never really talked about. Um, but now, you know, now it's very popular, very well supported by everybody. I, I really don't have any, I, I haven't had any um, complaints or people that would like to ask the students not to be forthright or not to do research. It, it's just, it's, everybody wants to be in the program. Well, that's also because I think you have been so successful at really changing the culture of your school. That's, that's part of the identity of Palo Alto now because of, because of what you've done, I think. To your um, that's probably true. Yeah, so, you know, uh, the culture of the school, the culture of the whole city, the culture of the community has changed. And kids mm -hmm. feel respected, and they, uh, as a result, they, they take it seriously, and they produce very interesting articles. Uh, and I tried to um, actually stop sending home the newspaper, because I thought we'd save some money. And uh, then there was a big outcry about what a terrible idea that one was. Um, so, okay, fine. It's online, and we send it home at the same time. And um, yeah, the community the community really values the um, the opinions of the students, and it makes them the students really feel like they're part of all the decision making and part of uh, part of everything. We have very little in the way of um, vandalism or uh, problems with the students or you know cutting class or things like that. Primarily, I think because. They, they do feel like they're part of the decision-making process. Esther, um, is the link pallyvoice.com? Yes, that's it. Yes, okay. that's, that's the, so the link is pallyvoice.com. Um, that's our website. We actually have um, three websites. So this is one. Um, we actually, I guess there's four websites, sorry. Um, so Campanile has another website. Um, our sports magazine has a website of its own too. Um, Verde magazine has a website, and then they all converge on the Pally Voice website. And uh, so that that's basically what we're what we're doing. Uh, this is the entrance to the whole program. And uh, so we have the broadcast journalism program actually. I don't know if you go down a little bit. You can actually see the broadcast journalism program also should be featured at the bottom of this. So we, we broadcast every day to the whole student body. And um, so that's also part of the program. So the idea when, when it was created was to have an, um, some kind of a media program that would appeal to every student at the school. So if you're an athlete, you can do the sports journalism. You know, if you want 
literary, literary magazine, you can do that. We now have also Foreign Affairs magazine for kids that are interested in that. We have the broadcast program for kids that like that. Uh, we make videos. I mean, just try to keep them happy and busy and engaged and then involved in the whole decision making process. So this is these are, this is our latest website. Um, it's on um, WordPress. And um, I think it, you can just see this is this is all student created. You know, teachers don't do any of this stuff. It's just all students that do it. And sometimes it has problems and that's actually all part of the learning process, you know. If if there's a problem then you know they have to take it down or redo the story or something. But for the most part they're really good about checking everything, make sure that it works. So there's been some good chat uh, around um, sort of kicker and the degree to which, uh, Holly, are you noticing that uh, students are becoming engaged or more engaged? Mm -hmm. And is there any way to actually measure that? Yeah, I so saw Jackie asked that question. It, it's a great question. And we actually haven't started to try to measure that. We don't even right now require um, any kind of sign-in or registration. Um, Although we're looking at that, really, I mean, um, when I launched Kicker, I really just wanted to get it out there and start to get feedback. We really launched a very alpha program, and it's already taking off. I mean, the, just the, the rate at which people are sharing content and um, and viewing the content, you know, our, our numbers are going up um, dramatically, which is really exciting. We're getting great feedback, and we're seeing that people are really liking the approach that we're taking. Um, but that definitely was not my priority. My priority was to get it out there and start to convene an audience. And then I think um, we'll be able to start building something that enable us to not just um, monitor and, and find out what people are doing and how they're engaging, but also maybe do some interesting programs to uh, maybe partner with organizations to really um, foster that kind of engagement further. So we definitely have, we have tons of ideas about how to do that, but for the first few months, the goal has really been um, you know, hit the voice, hit the content um, and start to get out there and start to get feedback and see um, you know, where we really should be. But I, I love the idea of trying to do um, a little bit more in terms of you know, finding out what kids are responding to and how are they engaging. Because you know, as Esther's pointing out, um, that, that's really the goal. Right? The larger goal is engagement, civic engagement um, you know, is, is very tightly correlated. And I put a link into the chat room, very highly correlated with um, with teens engaging in news content. You know, people don't wake up magically in their in their 20s or 30s and just say, oh, now I want to get interested in politics. Or I, I suddenly have this urge to, um, you know, go and, and find out what's going on in the world. That just doesn't happen. Um, those, those habits have to start getting fostered when, when kids are younger. And, um, you know, one of, the, one of the, the reasons why Kicker exists, why I decided to do it, is that, you know, as everybody knows, you know, print news readership is way down. So like when I was a kid, when I came down for breakfast, there were newspapers on the table and I read them. Now, my daughter sees that, but a lot of kids don't. Their, their parents are looking at news on iPads or on iPhones or whatever it is, and you don't get to really look at news with your parents the same way, um, you know, on an iPhone, the same way that you can if you're, you know, turning the pages together of a big newspaper. And at the same time, newspaper and education programs have gone down as well. Even the New York Times newspaper and education program, they hardly give any copies of print newspapers out anymore. Now they give um, access to the online 
paper, but it's just it's not the same thing as having the paper sitting around. So there's this there's this lack of um, exposure. At the same time, you know, kids are obviously they they have like their news feeds and Facebook and Twitter and and Tumblr, but all of that is disembodied. A link is a link. You don't know what you're going to click on when you see some clever language around a link. It could be news. It could be you know, personal blog. It could be anything. So you know, kids are actually confused when they see news sometimes. They don't necessarily know the difference between opinion and, and hard news and stuff like that. So there needs to be context around news and there needs to be um, ways of letting kids know that they don't have to feel helpless and hopeless when they read about something like, um, you know, gun violence or they read about something like, um, you know, um, poverty. There, there's actually ways for them to get involved. So, you know, we're, I, I do a lot of thinking around all this. And as I said, I don't know yet how engaged people are getting, but the feedback has been really positive. So that's, that's a good start. So I just so want to follow up really, on what Go ahead, Esther. Said, um, she said kids don't know the difference between news, fact, and opinion. And that's absolutely true. And that's part of the reason why they all need to be trained. They need to understand what is fact and what is opinion. And maybe most adults know it, but I'm not sure about that either because a lot of people are getting fooled all the time when they read an article and they say, oh, you know, I read this. And actually, it was not a factual article. It was opinion. So um, so that's why this journalism curriculum should be taught in all classes, in all schools. And one of the best places I thought to put it was just in like one half of one year of the high school English curriculum. So instead of four years of English, how about three and a half years of English and one semester of journalism? And giving them all these skills that are, by the way, at this point, they're required by the new uh, Common Core State Standards. So I'm wondering if either of you, um, during the presidential debate, saw a level of conversation that you, through the presidential debates, saw a level of conversation taking place in student journalism that wasn't taking place in mainstream media. And I don't know that, that you're going to be able to tell me, yes, that that's the case. But as a consumer of news, I was really frustrated that the most critical issues in the, in the presidential race weren't actually being addressed. Did the students pick up on that? Well. Uh, my program is probably atypical, but yes, my students did a whole section on that, um, on like the issues and what the problems were and why they weren't doing this and that and so forth in the debates. But um, I don't think I saw it in any of the exchange papers that I got. I don't know. What do you think, Holly? You know, I, I follow pretty closely, um, you know, any news about millennials. Um, so I simply saw that a lot of millennials felt like the issues that they cared about a lot weren't being mentioned. And one of the ones that really comes to mind right now is the environment. I saw a lot of commentary of millennials saying, like, why isn't there more discussion about the environment? This is something that we really care about. And there wasn't really a lot of substantive discussion, you know, in the debates, which we have um, some pretty interesting coverage on, I think, on Kicker. Uh, on Kicker. You can go back and, and look at the the way we tried to cover the debates, um, you can see that there really was, it was glossed over. It's hardly mentioned. Um, and even education was not a big part of the, of the discussion. And student loan debt, you know, that stuff kind of flew by um, pretty quickly during the debate. So I definitely heard students talking about that, that's for sure. 
So, you know, one so, other thing I want to mention is that this is the 25th anniversary of the Hazelwood decision. And for those of you that don't know what that is, it was <clears throat> it was the Supreme Court decision that gave principals and advisors the right to censor student press. And so the most censored group here in America are teenagers, and that's their high school press. And uh, so that might be one reason why um, they are not commenting on things, because maybe they are being censored. There's only six states in the United States that have passed laws that invalidate Hazelwood in their state, and California is one of them, which is why my students do enjoy their First Amendment rights. So I'm wondering, Esther, are you able to see a direct translation of the skills from the journalism course to the self-direction of these students in other areas of their lives? Well, if I take a look at my students that have graduated and what they're doing, it, I would say 100% yes. It is amazing how they're using these skills in all areas, whether they become doctors, lawyers, businessmen, or whatever. Many of these kids are have, they're now doing their own startups. There are lots of these entrepreneurs that are they use these skills for research and for just being able to communicate effectively in so many ways. Very, very they're valuable skills. Um, if you just think about it, you know, if you as an adult can find the information you want and communicate it effectively, you know, I don't care what field you're in, that you've got a head a head start. Palo Alto is a pretty privileged area. Are there those same clear connections in other schools doing journalism programs that you're aware of where they may not live in an affluent community? Um, well, I get a lot of people coming through looking at the program from a lot of different areas of California um, and actually worldwide, to be honest. And um, and I do note that the, the journalism programs, there are many that are doing this, but they're small. Most of them are really small programs. Um, so, you know, your typical 20 to 25 kids. And it's usually because, um, first, it's hard to find journalism teachers. And secondly, most teachers of English don't feel like they are properly trained to teach journalism. So um, that, that's kind of a block, I think, there. And one of my goals is really to help all teachers, whether they're English or social studies teachers, to realize that they too can teach journalism. I mean, it's not very hard to do if they just think about it. You know, the news stories, feature stories, reviews, opinion, you know, everybody reads them. I'm sure that if they just tried to write them or try to see what it was like to try to set up a lesson plan for them, it wouldn't be that hard. Holly, you made a comment in one of our email exchanges about um, the teaching of history. And we had an experience in our family where our daughter uh, went to live in Nepal between high school and college and did humanitarian work and then went to visit Cambodia. And it, coming home, she said to me, I never learned about what happened in Cambodian school. And in fact, most of the really critical issues that were like what took place in Cambodia weren't really a part of her education. Do you have feelings about this? That's really interesting. Um, I'm, I'm actually I'm surprised to hear that about Cambodia. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, I mean, I'm not a history teacher. You know, when I was a classroom teacher and I was for 10 years, um, I taught um, English literature and composition and philosophy and
in journalism. So I don't I don't know if I can speak with too much authority about history, but I do know that I've definitely heard teachers say, well, I don't think that teaching news is appropriate. Um, I, I worked for years on the, the New York Times Learning Network, and we got mostly amazing feedback. But sometimes we got feedback from people saying, I can't believe you're writing lesson plans about the tsunami in Japan or something like that. How, how could you? How could you try to take advantage of this moment? And I sort of thought that was funny because I figured probably some of the teachers were then, you know, turning off the computer and then going into their classrooms and teaching about, you know, the Holocaust and, you know, World War One and et cetera. So I kind of thought it's kind of funny to think that something current is not um, not important or not appropriate for school, but that stuff in history is. So um, this is definitely not something that I, I ever you know, experienced in my own classroom, and I don't think I, I can't remember a time when you know a colleague really said that to me. But I definitely this is sort of out there. I feel like that that news somehow doesn't feel like it is school worthy, and yet history is. And I I would love to hear what other people think about that. I just find that a little bit curious. Well, I would just like to say that probably the reason that they never heard about it is because you know the most controversial subject in the schools is history. History is really the most subjective of all subjects, and you know what is considered a victory by one group is not considered a victory by another. So, and also Americans concentrate on American history, and they don't concentrate on anything else. I mean, for the most part. So, not knowing about what went on in Cambodia. I mean, we do a terrible job of teaching geography. I mean, kids can't even find Cambodia, let alone know, know where the history is. Mm -hmm. So if they were more involved, they, you know, given more opportunity to research and invest, explore on their own, and maybe they would know more about it. But they're told what to do. And you know, this is actually part of you know the, the studies that I mentioned earlier about that went into my thinking about Kicker. One of the things that keeps a lot of young people, especially students, from wanting to read news is that they don't necessarily have the background, right? So if something happens in Cambodia, Steve, like your daughter might feel put off from following that story because she didn't learn about it in history class. And she definitely doesn't, may not know the context. And especially, you know, in our lives, five or ten years might not feel like that much time. But if you're 16, something that happened ten years ago, that's a long time. And you weren't necessarily reading news when you were six. And I think generally, I think mainstream news kind of rolls their eyes at that, like all oh, these kids. They don't know who Osama bin Laden is, and my thinking is like, why why punish them for that? Why roll their roll our eyes and move on? Why not help pull them into the conversation? So for me, you know, and I put this in the chat room. You know, what I'm trying to do on Kicker is very much provide a starting point. You know, if you never heard of Assad and you see a New York Times you know, headline that says what, what the latest thing that Assad is doing in Syria, and you don't know what's going on in Syria. Maybe you've been studying for the SAT or whatever. I don't think that we should just roll our eyes at you and say, you know, get with the program. I think we should say, here's a way in. Here, here's, here's, a, here's a map. Here's where Syria is on a map. And here's who Assad is, and here's who his father was, and here's the story, and here's what people are fighting about. And then here are links so that you can go deeper and you can get, but this is just, a basic overview. So we always provide some kind of context. You know, one of our, our of our most popular pieces of content so far was the whole post is just in the form of a glossary. When when uh, there was a conflict that was going on between the Palestinians and the um, Israelis, we explained what is Palestinian, what's Hamas, 
and people went nuts for him. Because you know what? Guess what? A lot of people, you know, a lot of teachers and other other adults also don't necessarily know those things or have those things at the top of their mind. And so when you see a headline about the Gaza Strip, sometimes it makes you feel silly that you can't remember that in that moment exactly what's going on there. But you shouldn't feel silly. I think you should feel like you, you have a way to find this out without having to do tons of research and go to Wikipedia. So that's, you know, that's part of what I'm trying to do too is give you a little bit of context that you know, if you missed that day of history class or you didn't have a good history class or whatever it is, that you still can read news and get context and figure out where you, where you fit in, in the world of what's going on in the world. Sounds good. Sounds really good. It's news with support. That, that, that's what we're trying to do. You know, we don't, you know, one of the things I say is I want you to feel smart, not stupid. News should not make you feel stupid. News should make you feel smart. I think news is really is education in a different format. You know, I, I've been a classroom teacher, I've been a journalist, and I actually don't think there's that much of a difference between the two. So we had a question in the chat, uh, Esther. Tom wanted to know, how did you get so many kids involved? In my school of 3,200 students, we have trouble getting kids to join the newspaper. Well, here, let me just, the number one thing that draws them is, the number one thing that actually drew people to America, freedom. Um, if they think that they can write about things that are of interest to them and they can have some control of their program and you basically teach them the tools and then, okay, now you know how to do it, so let's give you an opportunity to, to do it. And I will support you in terms of all the tools and things and I'll make sure that, you know, if you need me to prove something, I'll be happy to do that. That, that will attract them. I think most kids, and that's what um, most kids are really looking for. They want independence as teenagers, you know how they don't like to even think that, you know, they have a mother and father at that stage. Um, and they, wanna, they want recognition for it. So they want independence and um, recognition. And so journalism gives them that, provided that you provide that for them. Um, and I know it sounds scary to give them so much control, but through the years I've discovered that they weed out all the bad stuff themselves, even without you jumping in and trying to, you know, force it. Um, mm -hmm. So cause some of the story ideas they come up with, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this is going to happen. And it doesn't, you know, it's just, it's just teenagers being teenagers, but then they actually end up not writing about it. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, uh, the, the different schools that I taught at and um, ran the journalism programs at, at every school, um, I grew the program, not to the level of Esther's. I never taught in a school that, that large also, but, um, you know, I taught at Stuyvesant High School in New York. Um, I taught at Packard Collegiate Institute in Brooklyn. I taught at the American School in London um, and ran the journalism programs there at those schools and, and massively grew um, the programs in all three schools, and it's exactly what Esther's saying. It's taking the kids seriously, and it's um, it's giving them really authentic, truly authentic work to do. Well, yeah, I should just mention it's it's. Well, I made up this little acronym for it, but it's it's really trust. It's trust and respect, and independence, uh, collaboration, and kindness. So I made up this little. The acronym is Trick, and um, and that's basically what it really is. Because if you trust them, they trust them each other, they trust themselves, yeah. you create the atmosphere in the classroom 
and then that expands. It moves out all over, as right now, like I said, in the community as a whole. Esther, have any teachers said to you specifically that the nature of the program changed how they taught in their own classes? Has there been sort of that kind of visible allowance that there's been a shift in their practices? Well, it took a while, um, to be honest, because what happens in a program like mine is that I'm relinquishing a certain amount of control and power to the students, and that's hard for teachers. Um, but I can tell you that now pretty much everybody's doing it, at least at Palo Alto High School. Um, people see the value and they see the engagement. And um, so there's a lot, of, a lot of this taking place. But it, I, it did not happen overnight. Um, as a matter of fact, it, it took a while. Um, and as, you know, there still are teachers that are not participating, but there are not very many of them. They, most of them give students a lot of collaborative work, give them a lot of differentiated instruction, a lot of computer, a lot of computer use, um, and it's it's across the curriculum. So it's not just in um, journalism; mm -hmm. so it's in, in a lot of the classes. So yeah, it has had an impact. Ali. Um, there's a real concern about the lack of investigative journalism as newspapers have um, had financial difficulty. Mm -hmm. and, and often the response is, well, citizen journalism will take up that space. H how do you feel about that? And um, what are you seeing, both positive and negative, with regard to investigative journalism? That's a really interesting question. Um, it's, it's complicated, right? But um, just a few sort of small thoughts about that. Um, on the one hand, really good investigative journalism is very costly, right? It takes a lot of resources. So um, like last year when John Branch at the New York Times, who just recently did that amazing project called Snowfall, um, last year he did a really deep investigative piece about a hockey player who had sustained a brain injury. Um, and it really said a lot about what was going on in, in, in hockey. And he spent months and months working on that piece. And that's very costly for the New York Times to put this kind of resources into, so to do, to do that, that level of investigation. So, there, so that's, that's not something that every organization can sustain and not every independent blogger um, can sustain. You know, it's hard to spend months embedding yourself in story um, if you're not being able to you know, recoup the cost for that. So it's, a, it's complicated. Um, at the same time, you know, newspapers are having to conserve resources and, and really decide what they're going to focus on. So there's also opportunity for other players to, you know, to, to come on, um, on the scene and try to, to grab little you know, niche, niche markets. Um, and sometimes you see you know, non-mainstream publications you know, come up with these amazing scoops, like just yesterday, Deadspin, you know, the one who got the, the big scoop about the Notre Dame football player's, you know, girlfriend um, not existing. That's not something that, you know, and, and some major, you know, sports reporters, Pete Thamel at, at, um, at Sports Illustrated, who was a former Times journalist, he had a piece today about how he also was, you know, taken in by the story and why he missed it, um, you know, why he missed the truth of what had really happened. I mean, ESPN, CNN, New York Times, et cetera, these are like veteran journalists who didn't piece, you know, put the pieces together. And it took a couple guys at Deadspin, which is not, you know, tiny, but it's not a mainstream, you know, 
um, newspaper, um, you know, it took them to, to try to uncover it. So I think it's really, I would say it's really a patchwork, what, what you're seeing. I think it's a little bit of everything. I think to some extent, you know, most news organizations can't send their reporters to Syria and, and you know, and, and Iraq and Afghanistan. They just can't. You, know, you need the New York Times to do that and some other organizations. And then you also need these smaller players to try to, you know, push into um, to specific areas that maybe, you know, the big guys just can't drill down into. So I, I think it's a little bit of everything, if that makes sense. Esther, one of the things I hear about investigative journalism is that it's not just the cost of the investigation. It's having the ability to withstand the lawsuits that will inevitably come when you're touching on difficult topics. Have you had students who have gone through your program and have gone into journalism, and do they feel, do they feel positive or negative about their, the opportunity to make a difference as a journalist? Well, the, I have some very well-known students that are in journalism. One of them is um, the Economist Chinese correspondent. Um, there's another one that's a lead writer for Bloom, Bloomberg Business uh, Magazine. I think they feel that, um, well, especially the one in China, The Economist supports incredible investigative reporting. And um, I think Bloomberg does too. And then I have other students on um, the Los Angeles Times. I think um, I think everybody is concerned because of the loss of of the number of papers that are supporting um, investigative reporting. But that doesn't mean that it's it's totally gone. It's just that the numbers are smaller, and what they're reporting, there's just not as much coverage anymore. And um, citizen journalists can replace uh, professionals, you know, for just local small issues, but they can't really do the big issues. They, they don't have the resources. They don't have the training. They, um, you know, they they just can't do that kind of reporting because also most of them have other jobs so you know it takes up a lot of time so I don't I don't know where we're headed but I do think that it would be a terrible loss to democracy as a whole if you know we don't have uh, investigative reporting good quality investigative reporting um, that is ongoing so and of course New York Times is is probably one is probably the best, one of the best. Of course, I read I read three newspapers a day plus all the stuff on the website. You know, so I spend a ton, and I have tons of magazines, actually surrounded by piles right this very second. Um, but I think I'm kind of I'm not your average person because of course I teach journalism and I'm particularly interested in it. So uh, we're, we're getting close to kind of finishing here. Uh, I'd like to give both of you sort of a chance to uh, indicate anything you sort of feel passionate we should take away from spending this time with you. Are, are there things that you would hope that uh, an educator listening to this show would want to do? And, and Holly, can I start with you? Sure. Um, yeah, I guess there's a few things. I think. Um, I think Esther and I really both really deeply believe that journalism is interdisciplinary 
and really rewarding to teach in, for so many reasons, um, both as writing models and reading and for reading material. Um, so I, I would hope that teachers who don't necessarily even teach journalism or have taught with news would give it a try. I supplemented my philosophy classes with you know, uh, New York Times articles. And you know, I didn't just use journalism in my journalism class. I used it you know, a lot, very extensively, actually, in literature and composition as well. You know, that's, those are the really authentic models. In order to help students be better um, writers, we have to be able to show them real writing models. Um, you know, they're out there in the world reading magazine articles and, and news articles, but then they come into school and they don't write that way. Well, then we wonder, hmm, why are they so confused about how to write? Well, because a lot of the writing assignments, like the five-paragraph essay that doesn't exist in the world, that's a purely artificial thing that's taught in school, I, and I have no idea why. Esther and I are both in the uh, death to the five-paragraph essay club. So I, I think that, um, I think I would hope that teachers might think about ways to use journalism in pretty creative ways in the classroom. And I really hope also that um, that they would encourage students to be more informed about what's going on in the world and, um, and, and take action. Like I said, there, there's, no, there's no reason that students can't be part of the real world and that you know, we shouldn't think of them that way. They're part of the real world. They can have real impact um, on, on issues. And there's no reason to you know, stop them from, from diving right in. We can give them you know, good guidance and help them talk to you know, the tough issues, and we should. But I think we should be encouraging them much more to read, um, to read about and, and listen to what's going on in the world. So I agree with everything Holly just said. So that makes it uh, easier. <laughs> um, I just want to say one thing that I would like everybody to do would be if, they could, if people could just try to do one journalistic writing assignment in their class, just one. And it could be, for example, something as simple as having them interview the, another student in the class and then write a personality feature that is about that person. And in order to teach them how to do it, just get some personality features out of magazines or off, offline or, you know, in a newspaper. But it's a really simple assignment and kids love doing it. And then it teaches them some of the basics about you know, what's the most important thing? How to write a lead? You know, let's not start in chronological order. Like, you know, so-and-so was born in, and I said, I don't even want to know when they were born because it doesn't matter. We were all born and we won't be here, and that's not exactly news. So um, I want to, I have them writing about, like, what is the thing that is most, that person is most interested in I don't care whether it's like sleeping all day or whether there's, they want to, you know, skateboard or whatever they like. I don't care. Just have a focus and make sure that you're writing about it. Anyway, the kids love doing it. It teaches them a lot. So if people could just do that one thing, it would get them started. Holly and Esther, thank you both for um, allowing me to drill down in this way. This was a really fun conversation and I appreciate you being so responsive to the invitation and, and uh, for all that you've said tonight. Um, really appreciate your being here. Thank, Thank you, Steve, for inviting us. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Nice opportunity. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. So uh, go kicker.com to find Kicker and um, 
uh, there was some feedback in the chat, Holly, uh, from some people that, I've, that I'm anxious to have them participating on your site and, and learning more. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Uh, on the 29th, Gary Obermeyer comes to talk about Deming. If you don't know why Deming is important, hopefully you will after that show. Take care, everybody. Have a good night. Bye now. Thank Bye you. Now. Thank you. Bye.